And this morning, we're going to be kind of um, getting some insight into the nature and the person of Jesus Christ in his infancy and childhood. And I want to tell you at the outset that Luke is not necessarily attempting here to give us a um, precise chronological unfolding of everything that happened in the life of Christ. For one thing, he covers 12 years in about 30 verses. So that tells you itself that you know, it's not going to be a great detail. But also, if you compare it to some of the other Gospels, um, you find that sometime in the end of chapter 2 here um, is when Herod's slaughter of the children in Bethlehem occurs and uh, Joseph is warned in a dream during the night and he takes Mary and Jesus and they escape to Egypt. Luke does not mention that. Um, there's evidence that Luke was writing after at least one of the Gospels was already written and um, there's some information out there and uh, he does not uh, feel the need to go into those details. So Really what we're doing is kind of getting a panoramic view. What Luke wants us to really grasp is some of the significance around three events that occur that tell us about who Jesus is. The first one has to do with his circumcision, his naming, and the rites of purification uh, for Mary shortly after his birth. The second one related to it is uh, the introduction of Simeon and Anna, um, who uh, give us some insight into uh, the, the specialness of his character. And then the last one is a glimpse of him at the age of 12, uh, where we see him in the temple and it's an interesting story surrounding that. So those are the things we're going to be looking at this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along as I read, beginning in verse 21. When eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed... They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now Luke does not go into detail telling us between the first couple of verses here that these are two different occasions. You, you can see it, once I tell you, if you didn't notice, then you can see it as you read. But the first occasion is his circumcision and naming at the eighth day. And the second event is the purification for Mary, which occurred at the 40th day. So there's some 30-something days in between uh, these two events that we're told about. And the suggestion uh, is that uh, perhaps as he came uh, at the time of purification and dedication in that second event, maybe when uh, Simeon and Anna uh, appear to him. But it was the custom 
of every Israelite, every male born, to be circumcised on the eighth day. This was God's sign of the covenant uh, to Abraham. And every child uh, from the time of Abraham on, a uh, male child who was born into an Israelite family, was circumcised on the eighth day, and that was also the day in which they were officially named. Remember I told you a couple of weeks ago that the, um, the Jewish people did not presume that they were going to have a live birth with a healthy child, um, and they didn't uh, give a name or uh, an investment, so to speak, until some time had passed, and they were pretty sure uh, this baby was going to be viable. Uh, there were so many uh, deaths in infancy and all of those kinds of things. And so they waited until the eighth day, the day of circumcision, to also name the child and say, he's really here, and this is his name, and, and this is our baby. And <clears throat> the scripture says they named him Jesus, which in the Hebrew is Yeshua, and it means Savior. Now, he was not the only boy child named Jesus. There were others, and we, we encounter several of them in the New Testament. Um, hearkening all the way back to the Old Testament to Joshua, whose name also in Hebrew is Yeshua. He was the Savior of the Israelites as they went into the Promised Land. Um, but this was the very particular name and function of our Lord Jesus Christ. The second thing that happens here is his circumcision. And I want to talk just a little bit about that because there are two important things that we learn from Jesus' circumcision that tells us about his, his purpose. The first thing is that circumcision was the sign of the covenant. That the covenant that God made with Abraham, he believed God and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. And then the covenant that was formalized also uh, in the giving of the law under Moses, for a, a male child in Israel to be circumcised with the sign of the covenant was to say, we belong to the covenant people. We belong to the God of Israel. We uh, are those who have received the law and the promises, and this is our heritage. We are God's people. Jesus Christ was born under the law, as a covenant child under the law. And part of the significance of that, you remember later in his ministry, he was challenged, saying, you know, you, you are destroying and ignoring the law. Well, Jesus didn't have a whole lot of uh, patience with all of the additional rules and regulations that the Pharisees had added. But it was never his intent to break the law. And he made that very clear. He said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And in Jesus Christ, the new dispensation, the new relationship with God, is not a relationship that ignores the law, 
but it is a relationship that having fulfilled the law in Christ, we are now ushered into the realm of living in the Holy Spirit so that the, the law of God written on our hearts and empowered by the Holy Spirit is fulfilled in us. Jesus, by being circumcised, was also uh, identifying with that whole dispensation of people who were born under law. It was his intent to fulfill the law and then to lift it in its burden from us. The second thing that circumcision uh, taught, and it took uh, the prophets later on to explain this to the Israelites, and the Apostle Paul in Galatians and in Colossians also explains it, is that in the removal of the, the, force, the flesh of the foreskin, that signified the removal of the carnal nature to reveal the true spiritual nature of man. Now, I, I realize if you think about the imagery of all this, it gets, it gets very convoluted. But the scripture is pretty clear when the prophets say, circumcise your heart. And he speaks that word to men and to women. Circumcise your heart. And what he means is, uh, take away the, the carnal, fleshly nature and become uh, the people of God that you were meant to be. The Apostle Paul in Colossians tells us that in Jesus Christ we have been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the flesh, the carnal nature, from our true spiritual nature. And the whole point is to teach us that we are born in sin, we have this natural inclination to follow worldly, um, materialistic instincts, and we are physical beings. But we were never intended to live driven by just our physical desires in nature. We were intended to live as flesh and blood people on this planet, guided by the Spirit of God. And when Adam and Eve sinned and gave up their relationship with God and were ousted from the garden, the only thing left, because the Holy Spirit removed himself from their lives, the only thing left was the, the baser nature, the materialism, the, I, I want to say, animalistic nature. And actually, uh, there are a lot of people that wouldn't have any objection to that at all. They'd just say, we're the highest animals. Well, sometimes we act like it. We act like animals. Uh, we are animalistic in a sense. But unlike animals, we have a spiritual side to us that is all but covered up in the sin nature. And it is the, the 
basically the removal of that carnal nature, the, the denial of the flesh, so that we can be restored to a relationship guided by the Spirit to rise to the height that we were intended to be as people who stood between the eternal and the spiritual and the supernatural and God and the planet, human beings are kind of a hybrid, if I can use that term. But until you know Jesus, you're not a hybrid, you're basically an animal. <laughs> I mean, you have a spirit, but it's dead. And your soul is dulled and numb to the things of God. Circumcision is a graphic symbol of removing the flesh and coming into the spiritual nature. Jesus perfectly identified with us. Now, I know that at eight days of age, he didn't have a whole lot to say about it. But it does not change the reality that his parents in fulfilling the law, were bringing Jesus unwittingly to him under the total compliance of the law. And as one ancient commentator said, I think with some insight, he began shedding his blood for us, even in his infancy. Isn't that an interesting thought? That he identified with our sin nature and a child of the covenant and began shedding his blood for us even in his infancy. The next thing that happens is that Mary and Joseph and, the, and Jesus appear in the temple for the purpose of her rites of purification. And we are told that uh, they offered a uh, pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, that they brought an offering in accordance with this. This gives us some insight into uh, Jesus' personal economics because wealthier families would have brought a lamb however it was permitted to bring uh, an offering of the turtle doves or the pigeons if you were poor and as a consequence this gives us insight into the fact that Jesus was not raised in a household that had a lot of wealth, a lot of a privilege, a lot of money, but he was raised in a family that, uh, if not poverty, were certainly uh, at the lower end of the economic rung, where he did not grow up in the lap of luxury, so to speak. I think we need to recognize these kinds of things to realize that Jesus has walked in our shoes. He has experienced what we have experienced all the way to his childhood. And uh, it's not so much that God had to learn these things. It's that we had to learn that God fully understands. Did you know what I'm saying? God is omniscient. He already knows how you feel. He already knows what you experience. When you're tempted, he already knows what a struggle you have. 
He already knows that. But how does he prove it to you? How does he make you a believer in his comprehension of your challenges and your difficulties and your temptations and struggles? He does it in the person of Jesus Christ who came in our flesh, our bodies, walked in our shoes, lived our lives on this planet as we live. That was for our benefit. You know, God didn't need to learn that. But we needed to learn that from him. I have walked in your shoes. And as Jesus put it, and, and when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We needed that insight as well. And so uh, Mary and Joseph uh, indicate to us by their offering that they are not among the wealthy and that Jesus grew up in a very ordinary, if not uh, somewhat economically challenged home. Moving to verse 25, the scripture says, And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him uh, the custom of the law, he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you're releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all the people, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end, that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. I want to talk just for a moment, kind of as an aside, and then come back to the story about inspiration of Scripture. The Bible says that all Scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, training in righteousness that the man of God can be adequate, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That word inspiration means God breathed. And our conviction is that the Bible is a book that has been breathed out by God. That the some 40-something authors of the Bible were inspired by the breath of God to write what they wrote and that he protected it in such a way that it is accurate, that it is without error, so that we can have confidence in it and trust it. But, as I've explained to you before, he did not say to some biblical writer, 
All right, get your parchment out, take up your pen, take a letter, and begin to dictate. It was not a process of dictation. It was a process where God inspired the writer, motivated the writer to write, but did not violate the writer's personality or his interest or his vocabulary, didn't change his grammar, uh, so that we read John, for example, and his Greek is very simple. His thoughts are profound, but his skill in the Greek language is quite basic. That's why every Greek student starts out translating John. Because it's easy to translate. You get into Hebrews, that's a whole other story. And so they have their own vocabulary, and they have their own style. Luke is like that. Luke has his own vocabulary, has his own style. God is breathing the, the word through him as he is being led to write. But God is not violating Luke's personality and interest. And Luke has some particular interest. There are things in his gospel that he highlights. They're special to him. And he wants us to see them. Um, one of the things is the concept of righteousness. Luke, more than any other gospel writer, constantly notes people who are righteous. He's very interested in people that obey God, and that follow Him, and that have a righteous character to their lives. He doesn't necessarily mean that in the, you know, in the ultimate sense of sinless, but he means it in the sense of these are obedient people to God who are serious about their walk with Him. So he focuses on righteousness. Another thing Luke focuses on more than any other gospel writer, and we see it in both Luke and Acts, is that he highlights the role of women in the life of Christ and in the New Testament church. He's very careful, whenever he can, to point out the, the impact and the role that women played in the storyline. Uh, it's like Luke uh, maybe may felt like uh, they weren't represented well enough, and he wants to call our attention to the fact that women were very much involved in the story. We see that here with Anna, and all the time that's taken in the opening chapters with Elizabeth and with Mary. A third thing that is characteristic of Luke is he is very interested in the Holy Spirit. And he really wants us to understand the, the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit. Luke wrote Acts and all the powerful things that the Holy Spirit accomplished. He wrote this gospel. And he tells us about this man, Simeon, who was probably a Pharisee, certainly one of the teachers of Israel, and a man who stood out. Uh, Extra-biblical literature tells us that he was probably the Pharisee. But God has always had his people 
even in times of spiritual dryness. You remember Elijah, his confrontation with the prophets of Baal, calling down fire from heaven on the altar, and then the next thing you know, we find Elijah running from Jezebel, because she's all upset, that's the king's wife, and she's going to, she says, uh, you know, he, he put to death all the prophets of Baal, and she says, I'm going to do this same thing to you by this time tomorrow. And Elijah's running, and finally he comes to a stopping place, and basically the question comes to him, uh, how come you're running, Elijah? And he says, um, I and I alone am left among the faithful in Israel. And God doesn't exactly say, quit your whining, but uh, it's kind of implied in the passage when he says, Elijah, there are 7,000 people in Israel that have not bowed the knee to Baal. Okay? There are more than just you. Sometimes we lose sight of that when we get in the midst of our troubles, we focus on ourselves, but there's other people that have remained faithful. And all through church history, there have been people who have remained faithful. We tend to think of the Pharisees in the New Testament as the bad guys. But Nicodemus was a good guy. And uh, Joseph of Arimathea, who offered his tomb, was a good guy. And Simeon is a good guy. In fact, we're told that Simeon had a special relationship with God. Now, I want to encourage you this morning that you, you, you don't have to be special to have a special relationship with God. But you do have to meet certain criteria. Years ago, A.W. Tozer, uh, he's with Jesus now, but years ago he was editor of the Alliance magazine called the Alliance Weekly in those days, and he wrote a column, an editorial, and as a denomination, we started collecting those things and publishing them in volumes uh, that collected his, uh, his editorials. And I remember clearly the title of one of those collections was God Tells the Man Who Cares. And I should add this morning, the woman who cares. God tells the person who cares. What they meant by that is that if you are interested in what God is interested in, he will share his heart with you. The eyes of the Lord roam all over the earth looking for those whose heart is toward him. And all it takes to be a special person to God. And you want to ask me this morning, you want to challenge me and say, does God have favorites? And my answer is yes, he does. Everybody gets salvation that asks for it. Everybody gets a home in heaven that turns from their sin and trusts Christ. But if you want to be really next to God... You have to care about what he cares about. And if you want him to reveal his heart to you, you have to be interested in what he has to say. He tells the person that cares 
what his goals are. And he is looking for faithful intercessors who will find out what's on his heart and mind and focus on that with him. And so Simeon was one of these people. Simeon had a special relationship with God. And God was willing to tell Simeon certain things. And one of the things that we're told is that by the Holy Spirit, it was revealed to Simeon that he would not die until he had seen the Messiah. That was a promise to Simeon. You're not going to see death until you have seen my Messiah. <clears throat> and so the Bible tells us that on this particular occasion, as Mary and Joseph are bringing Jesus to the temple for the dedication, that it doesn't come out so clearly in the New American Standard text that he came in the Spirit to the temple. But what the uh, Greek language behind that phrase is implying is that he was led by the Spirit, he was driven by the Spirit to go to the temple. Imagine, if you will, that Simeon wakes up in the morning and he's, uh, you know, he's having his time with God and he gets this strong impression. Simeon, you've got to go to the temple today. Move, get going, you've got to be in the temple. And so he recognizes that voice as being the voice of God and he goes to the temple. He's like, I'm not sure why I'm supposed to be here, but I'm here. And in come Mary and Joseph with Jesus. And the Holy Spirit points out to him Jesus. And he says, that's the Messiah. Now, maybe he had heard some rumors out of Bethlehem. Maybe this, the word of the shepherds had gotten to him. Maybe there was already some buzz and some excitement. But you know... To, to pick out a mother and a child and all the people that were milling around the temple would, uh, would not have been a natural thing to do. God pointed this baby out. And can you imagine Mary and Joseph are coming to, to uh, fulfill the rites of purification and to offer the sacrifice and to um, you know, go through that dedication moment and, and this teacher of Israel comes up to them, this old man. And he takes this baby, you know, he, can I hold him? And he reaches out and takes this baby in his arms. And he says, this is the consolation of Israel. This is the hope. Oh, master, now your servant can go in peace. And what he means by that is, I don't know how much longer I have to live, but I can die now in peace because I have seen the Lord's Christ. And then he says to the parents, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel and he will be a sign of contention. You know, people were expecting Jesus well, they were expecting their Messiah to come as a glorious king and uh, make everybody happy. And here is Simeon close to God's heart saying, he's not going to make everybody happy. He's going to make some people very unhappy. Uh, he is going to cause the downfall of many because they're going to reject him. 
I don't know how much Simeon could really see into the future, how much God had, had told him. But as he held Jesus in his arms and began to prophesy, he not only said that he was going to be for the rise and fall of many, but he also said to Mary, and you yourself are going to be pierced with many heartaches. There's going to be a lot of trouble in your life because of this child. You know, can you imagine the, 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 the dedication, the commitment of Mary and Joseph to be the parents of Jesus? It was not easy because ultimately they would have to watch him die, or at least Mary would. We don't know what happened to Joseph. Apparently he died along the way somewhere uh, much earlier. But Mary would be there at the cross. And the heartache that she would experience all along the way of Jesus' life. Well, I'm just about out of time, but let's look very quickly at uh, this visit by um, Jesus to the temple when he's 12. Uh, verse 41, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. And when he came, when he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents were unaware of it. Supposing him to be in the caravan, uh, they, but suppose that he was in the caravan. They went a day's journey. And they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When they, his parents, saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement that he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. I've always been amused at this story. When I was a child, I was confused by it because I knew that Jesus was sinless and it looks to me like he's in trouble with his parents here. And, uh, you know, I, and I've always wondered, okay, how does that work? Because if I did anything like that, I'd be in trouble. In fact, I'd be punished and told that I was wrong. But I want to ask you something. Did Jesus do anything wrong here? Think about it. So many times as parents, we land on our kids because they did something that freaked us out. When in fact, they didn't disobey, they didn't break any rules, they didn't do anything wrong. They were just being kids and doing Something that looked interesting to them. One of the most challenging times that I had uh, raising my sons, and particularly my older one, whom many of you know, 
I could never anticipate what he was going to do. I, I, did, I could not come up with enough things to prohibit. Because they could never anticipate what he was going to do next. He constantly surprised me. And it's not disobedience if you're not disobeying. You know, if you're just being a kid, it's not disobedience. I'm not suggesting Jesus was just being a kid here, but I do want to point out that there's no sin in what he did. However, his parents reacted just like any of us would react, don't you know? I mean, have you ever been in those situations where you've been with a lot of people, all the relatives and everybody's together and somebody gets misplaced and everybody assumes they're with the other person and then it's like, we did that once about 25 years ago on a youth trip. We left a kid at a state park between here and Rockford <laughs> where, where we had stopped with a bus and let, you know, and, and this Young person got off to use the bathroom, didn't bother to tell anybody he's getting off. Uh, you know, the bus left and we got to church and, uh-oh, where'd we leave him? Where is he? His parents were not amused and had to go back and uh, locate him. We figured he had to be when the bus was stopped, so we were able to find him. Uh, no sin there. Um, a lot of anxious moments, though. Parents were not happy with us, I can tell you that. But uh, those things occasionally happen. But the interesting thing about this story is that when they finally find Jesus, and what I find interesting is they had gone a day's journey. Okay, it's three days back to Nazareth. They had gone a day's journey. So it took them a day's journey to get back. That's two. They spent another whole day looking for him. They looked everywhere. I don't know what they were thinking, but they were looking all over for him. They probably looked where they'd camped. They looked, they looked up people they knew in Jerusalem. They looked everywhere. And then finally they go to the temple and find him. And Jesus says something to them that is quite astonishing. He says, didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house. Now, that is not how a Jew referred to God. I remember later when he said, pray then like this, our father, Papa God, Abba, who art in heaven, that they were, they were aghast because Yahweh was such a sacred name to them, they wouldn't even pronounce it. They would say the name, blessed be he. But they would never say Yahweh. Never. To call Almighty God my daddy was absolutely shocking. And Jesus' statement to his mother and father was, didn't you know I had to be in my daddy's house? Wow. And as he sat there talking for three days, mind you, with the teachers of Israel, they were astonished at his insight into the scripture. Jesus 
was already beginning to demonstrate his perception as he grew. But I want to remind you that he had to grow up like any other child. Luke ends the chapter by saying, so he grew in wisdom and stature and maturity in favor with God and with men. And that for him, growing up was growing up. He had to learn to eat with a fork. (laughs) He had to learn to take care of his own bathroom needs. He had to learn to write. He had to learn to read. He had to memorize the scriptures. He had to learn, like any other child, growing up in a very ordinary household with brothers and sisters. And yet, the obvious mark of God was upon his life with the insight that he had. Father, I want to pray this morning that you will help us to love Jesus more and more as we see all that he did on our behalf and to bring him glory and honor. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.